Well, happy Palm Sunday to you. You guys ready to get into it? You want to talk about Palm Sunday a little bit? Um, I was telling our pre-service team this morning, Palm Sunday is a little bit like, um, and I don't, this would probably never happen to you. This would be very strange and, and awkward and uncomfortable of a moment if this did happen to you. But, but imagine if you had ever gone to a birthday party and you get all the way through the birthday party and after the birthday party, you get home and you're just so excited because you really honored the guest of honor really well. And then you, after everything is over, the party's been cleaned up, the gifts were given, everything like that. And then you find out before you go to bed that night that you celebrated the wrong person. That it wasn't actually their birthday party. It was, it was somebody else's birthday, but you accidentally celebrated the wrong person the whole time. Now you're thinking, why didn't they say anything? What a weird moment. What a, what a strange illustration. Now, I can only come up with that kind of a strange illustration because Palm Sunday is actually like a party that was thrown for the wrong reason. And we need to talk about it. We have to talk about it. We have to talk about what Palm Sunday was actually about and what people's perception of Palm Sunday was. Now, in order to do that, if you would open your Bible with me to Mark chapter 11, we are going to read Mark's version of the Palm Sunday passage of Scripture. Uh, you might also know this passage of Scripture. In fact, it's probably in, in the, the little heading above this text uh, in Mark 11, above verse 1, where it might say something like the triumphal entry. Uh, this is another one of the, the names for this moment in Jesus' story. Now, as you're, if you're still just turning to Mark 11, we, we obviously know that a week from now is Easter. We're going to be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ in one week from today. The good news is he's already resurrected. We are, we're not waiting for it. We're just celebrating it next week. But today, historically, for the church, and, and on the day that we're about to read about, this marks the final days of the road towards the cross for Jesus. These are significant moments. And I would even say to you that during this week, it's as if Jesus's intentionality just ramps up a thousand percent. It's, it's the most intentional person to have ever lived in the history of the world ramps up his intentionality. And now all of a sudden, every single thing carries significance and meaning. And you begin to see if you study this passage and this, this, if you study this week of Jesus' life, you begin to see the number of prophecies that he fulfills about the Messiah just skyrocket during these last few days. But, but read with me, uh, if you would. Uh, we'll take a look here on the screen if you don't have it in your Bible uh, yet. In Mark chapter 11, verse 1, this is the story of the beginning of the last week of Jesus's life on earth. It says, when they approached Jerusalem, this is Jesus and his disciples, at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, by the way, just Bethany is where, uh, remember Mary and Martha and Lazarus, his homies, that's where they lived. And so kind of during this time, that's where he would go and hang out with them. They were like his Airbnb when he was in town. 
Uh, and so he's hanging out there, uh, but it says he's near the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples, and he told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street tied by a door. They untied it, and someone standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? By this time, these guys have been hanging out with Jesus for a few years, and they've seen him do crazy stuff like multiply fish a bunch of times and walk on water more like, than any other human has ever done. You know, like how many times have you walked on water? So Jesus says, go find a cult that no one's ever ridden on, and someone's going to ask you, what are you doing? So that when someone says, what are you doing, I love how they're just not flapped by this moment, right? So they just say, oh, they answered him. Jesus said they need it, so they let him go. Mark's just, like, he just glosses over the fact that Jesus predicted that someone would say, what do you need this for? And that if you tell them what you need it for, they would let you take the donkey. Everything is intentional. Everything is, like, to the detail. Jesus is intricately involved in, in, in fulfilling prophecy. We're going to get to how this is actually prophetic in just a second. Verse 7, we'll, we'll keep moving on. It says, they brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. Even that has meaning, and he sat on it. That has meaning. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches. John tells us they were actually palm branches uh, from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, which is a word which means save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. He went in Jerusalem and into the temple and after looking around at everything since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So we went and hung out with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And then we'll, we can pick up the story tomorrow if you re continue reading through the week of, of what Jesus did. He goes in and he cleanses the temple on Monday and he teaches on Tuesday. Wednesday, they kind of just hang out a little bit. And, and, and then uh, that's actually the day that Judas decides to betray Jesus and he makes an arrangement with the Pharisees. And you can begin to see how then everything begins to unravel from there. And very rapidly, we get to the crucifixion of Christ. But we have to talk about this day because I think we actually still misunderstand some of the elements of this day. So I just want to bring your attention to three elements of Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. Uh, if, I, if I could just take some of your attention and focus it on three areas today that will specifically help us to understand Palm Sunday. And let's, let's begin by talking about the day itself. Does that, does that sound good? Let's, let's talk about the day. So we know this day is Palm Sunday. Say Palm Sunday. I told you a minute ago, it's because John told us that there were palm fronds and they were being waved around. And uh, we commemorate on Palm Sunday the triumphal entry. This is, this is what happens on the Sunday before Easter every single year for your entire life. And if you are a church kid, particularly depending on what church you went to, you might have even had a service where there were uh, palm branches handed to you. And then like during a song, we're all waving the palm branches. Maybe you were a part of one of those churches. Maybe you did that as a kid and you're wondering how come we just have them up here in the front and I didn't get handed my palm branch. Is this really Palm Sunday? And if that's you, you've been going to church for a while. <laughs> so glad that you're still with us today. 
The crowd was recognizing Jesus as the promised Messiah, though. This is what's happening on this day. They're, they're recognizing something about him. They, they had heard about his miraculous ministry, or maybe they'd even been in the environment with him where they'd seen him do a miracle. Maybe they were one of the people among thousands who were fed from a little boy's lunch as Jesus multiplied it. Maybe they were one of the people sitting on the side of a hill as Jesus was out in a boat teaching them. Maybe they were one of the people who was physically healed by Jesus or they just knew some this man has done some incredible things over the last several years and the murmuring around the community is this guy is the Messiah the promised one so they see him entering Jerusalem they throw a praise party to welcome him as Messiah now that's it's, it's pretty incredible that they would throw a praise party for Jesus. And, and, and I remember as a kid just going, man, Palm Sunday, it's a great day. It's about the praise party before the praise party of the resurrection. It's like two weeks in a row. Church is a party. It's awesome. And everybody's super excited on this particular day. And yet, the reason we threw the party turns out that we were wrong. But we do have to talk about this day. So this day, it's day one of Holy Week. They didn't know that. For us, it's an invitation, of course, to invite Jesus into our lives as the King of Kings. It's an invitation to throw a praise party, to, to welcome him, to lay something of ourselves down before Jesus. It is all of the celebratory things, but it is also something else. You see, Jesus' triumphal entry is a significant day in church history, but it also happened on a significant day for the Jewish people. In fact, Palm Sunday, what we know as Palm Sunday, lands on the 10th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar. So four days before Passover. Uh, Passover was the feast that celebrated how God set the Jews free from Egyptian slavery. Can I just, can you indulge me a history lesson for a moment? Okay, you can read about this history lesson in Exodus chapter 12. All right, so we, we have to talk about the Passover. If you don't know what the Passover is, I'm about to give you the history lesson. If, if you want to know more about it, go read the book of Exodus. But uh, God had allowed for the people of Israel to be in Egyptian slavery, so they had been taken away from their homeland. And there was this Pharaoh who was... Uh, he was not a good guy. He is the villain in this story. And then God sends this guy to come and set the people free. And his name was Moses. Maybe you saw the cartoon about him. Uh, and Moses goes and he says, let my people go, right? This is what God is saying. Set my people free. Let my people go. And he's, he's trying to implore to the Pharaoh, let them go. And Pharaoh says, not on your life. In fact, it seems as if Pharaoh's heart continues to get harder and harder and harder as the story goes. And God is sending plagues upon the people of Egypt. And every single time a plague comes, it's almost like for a second it looks like maybe Pharaoh will let them go. But then what happens? His heart gets hard and he's, oh, not on your life is the next thing that he says. And so now we've got to do another plague. This happens several times. Finally, God has had enough. And it was always building to this moment. And here's what God says. He says, I am going to kill the firstborn child. Judgment, the angel of death is coming. Judgment is coming to the people of Egypt. Uh, and, and, and on a particular day, the angel of death will move through the city, through Egypt. And the firstborn in every house will be killed. 
Judgment is coming. But God, because his whole plan was to set his own people free, he told the people what to do. And what he told them to do was to take a spotless lamb, to sacrifice it, and during a meal that they would have in their home that night, that they would take some of the the blood of the lamb and it would be uh, painted over their doorframe. And everywhere that the angel of the, of, of the Lord would come and see the blood of the lamb over the doorframe of the house, the people in that house would be spared and they would live. And everyone who the blood of the lamb was not on their house, not on their doorframe, would, death would visit that house. And this is exactly what happened. And, and this, is, this is why we actually call it the Passover celebration, because the angel would pass over any house marked by the blood of the lamb. And for generations since then, Passover was a feast annually to commemorate God's rescue of the Jewish people from slavery and how the blood of a spotless lamb caused the angel of death and judgment to pass over them. And Passover was celebrated annually with a very specific meal, including a sacrifice of a spotless lamb. And the, and the spotless lamb actually would be selected in advance, right? You didn't just like show up the day of your Passover celebration and go, all right, which one of these lambs is looking, you know, acceptable? No, this, there was a process involved, and, and days before the lamb would be selected, days before, days in advance. In fact, a specific number of days in advance. In fact, it was the same day that Jesus rode a donkey into the holy city that the lamb was selected for the Passover. Now, you could tell me all that you want, that it just so happens that Jesus rode into Jerusalem because his calendar just, you know, lined up and a couple of appointments got canceled along the way. And so, you know, he just happened to show up. What a coincidence. Jesus shows up in the holy city leading up to his own crucifixion. Just what a wild happenstance. And it happened to have been the same day that the lamb was selected for the coming Passover celebration. Or maybe Jesus was riding into the city saying, I am the spotless lamb. What makes this day significant was that it was lamb selection day for the Jewish people. And Jesus rode into the city and said, yes, it is lamb selection day. And I am self-selecting me as the lamb. Now, play out the rest of this day. How does the rest of this day go? We'll, we'll, talk about, we'll talk about the parade a little bit more. We'll talk about the party a bit more. We'll talk about how people felt about it. But play out the rest of the day. Do you remember what we read? By the time we get down to verse 11 of, of Mark 11, it says Jesus goes into the temple. Goes into the temple. And what does he do? He looks around. I mean, Jesus had been there before. There's actually a story. He was there at least when he was a kid, about 12 years old, hung out for a few days, taught some people, kind of amazing. He'd been there before, but he's just looking around. Do you think he's looking around because he's like in awe of how beautiful it was? No, we know that he wasn't because at one of the, the moments during this week when he uh, has a disi- one of his disciples says, look how beautiful this temple is. He goes, don't worry about it. All of these stones are going to be teared down. There won't be a single stone left on another. In fact, the temple is going to be torn down. Then on the third day, it'll be 
raised from the dead. And somewhere halfway through that sentence, he actually started talking about himself instead of the building. Jesus wasn't impressed by the building. That's the point. He wasn't looking around because he was in awe. He was looking around because he, he was just, uh, honest, I honestly believe this, he wanted to walk into the temple and go, do you see that I'm here? I'm here. I've arrived. The lamb is in the temple. Okay, good night. In fact, it says that. Uh, it says because it was already late that he just, he just goes home. He went out to Bethany with the 12 because it was already late. Now, I do not have time to get into all of the intricacies, all the little details, all of the things that are significant about this passage, but I do want you to notice a few things here. First, it is important that we say again and clarify, Jesus was selecting himself on that day for sacrifice. This is why this is significant, and this is why you can immediately begin to see the praise party was a little bit off. Right? And Jesus made it very, very clear how he wanted to celebrate this lamb selection moment. He did one thing, and this is actually the next thing that we're going to begin to talk about today, is that he picked how he was going to enter into the city. Uh, before we get into that, we're going to talk about the donkey in a second. We talk about the day, we're going to talk about the donkey. I, I just want to drive this point a little bit further home as we can see that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Jesus is uh, he's, he's, he's making his first move towards fulfilling all of the prophecies, completing all of the prophecies about the Messiah. And one of those prophecies actually comes from Isaiah 53, verse 7. It says, uh, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. The people in the crowd that day would have known that prophecy. But there's something about the way that they were celebrating that says maybe they weren't connecting the dots just quite yet. So, we've talked about the day. We have a little bit of an understanding about the historical context of when this happens. But look at the way Jesus chose to engage this moment. He picked a donkey. He sends a couple of his guys ahead. Hey, go get this donkey for me. Uh, he could have just walked into Jerusalem. In fact, this is the only moment in all of Scripture that we see that during the earthly ministry of Jesus that he is not walking. Just for the record, we will see Jesus riding something again. The next time it will be a horse. And that actually really matters. It actually really, really matters. See, Jesus has been walking everywhere for three years, and on this moment he says, I want to ride something, and I want to ride something very specific. I want to ride a donkey, in fact, a, a colt. And, and, and he does that for two reasons. Number one, because it revealed his posture as a king. And that might not make sense to you. Like if you ride in on an animal, that doesn't show, you, show me that you're a king. But it would have to the people who saw him do it. In fact, it was in ancient Israel, in, an ancient, in, in the ancient world, when a king entered into a city, listen to this, when a king entered into a city on a horse, it meant something very specific. What it meant was, it's time for war. I'm coming in to conquer this city. And when a king would enter on a donkey, it was a sign of peace. 
Can you begin to see even more another layer of how this praise party was just a little bit off? Jesus entered in for peace, and how did they respond? Save now! We'll talk about why that was weird in just a moment. But another reason why Jesus picked a donkey to ride in on was because it fulfilled another prophecy about him being the Messiah. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Very specific And Jesus didn't just say, go find any old animal for me to ride in on. He made a very specific request, almost as if it had been planned by God himself. See, every Jewish person would have seen this man that they were thinking maybe is the Messiah riding, not walking into the city, but riding into the city, and they would have known Zechariah's messianic prophecy. So what did they do? Well, they did what Zechariah said. Rejoice greatly. Shout in triumph. Your king is coming. So what did they do? They shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The crowd saw Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and said, This man who has performed many miracles, really is the Messiah. And then they made a a jump. This is where you begin to understand why they were singing, why they were shouting, why they were laying down their coats, their robes, why they were waving palm branches. Because they made a jump to what they were expecting the Messiah to do. You see, for generations, all of these messianic prophecies had been interpreted just a little bit off. Just a, they missed it just a bit. He was coming. He would be the king. He would overthrow and set people free and bring righteousness and establish the kingdom of heaven forever. He would do all of those things. But a people who have been oppressed by foreign oppressive dictators and and kingdoms and rulers for generations and generations interpreted those prophecies in a very specific way. You see, they interpreted them through the lens of their politics. And I need you to go with me for a second, because saying that you interpreted Scripture through the lens of politics, I understand, can be a little bit of a jump and not, like nothing like that happens today. So just imagine a world with me where people misinterpret Scripture through the lens of politics, okay? Stretch your, your thinking with me for a second. This is what they're doing. And so how do a people who have been oppressed by foreign leaders for generations, taken off into slavery just to be brought back to be taken off into slavery again, and to be brought back finally into their homeland to, for the last 60 years, be oppressed by Roman invasion. And sure, we'll, we'll let you worship your God in your holy city, but you're going to pay us a lot of taxes, and we will persecute you. How would these people interpret the prophecy of the Messiah. Oh, Rome is going down. It's on. 
It's on, right? Pick up your swords, get a spear, get ready to fight. Game on. This is how they interpret it. So what do they sing? Hosanna, save now. Bring it on, Jesus. Look out, Pilate. Your days are numbered. This is how they interpret it. There's dudes with a mentality like mine in the crowd misinterpreting scripture, thinking they're being called into warfare. They're saying things to their friends like, Pilate, better watch out. We're coming for him, right? First, the procession to the temple, and next, the governor's house. Yeah, get your pitchforks. Okay, now let me give you another history lesson so you can really understand why they reacted the way that they did. Now, 150 years before this happened, shocker, the Jewish people had been invaded and they were being oppressed by Syrian dictators. So the bad guys are in town and they were, their, their king, actually he went so far as to set up an idol in the Jewish temple for Zeus. And he began to say to all of the Jewish people that you will make sacrifices to this idol instead of the, the sacrifices to your God. And if you don't, you're dead. And so there was one family of Jewish people called the Maccabees, and they were having none of this. In fact, uh, the leader of this household, he was one of the priests. And he saw that one of the Jewish uh, priests underneath him had actually went along with it and made a sacrifice to the false gods. So what did Mr. Maccabee do? He had him killed. I mean, remember, we've been oppressed for a long time. All we know is warfare and oppression. So he had the priest killed. He says, we're not playing around. You cannot make sacrifices to somebody else's God. So this begins what's known as the Maccabean Revolt. Now, there was a guy who was uh, one of the priest's sons named Judas. And Judas... He ended up actually being the guy who led the revolt to victory. They took back the city of Jerusalem, and they took back the holy temple of God, and, and they reestablished worship to Yahweh in the temple and in the holy city, and they kicked out the bad guys. And, and in order to celebrate that, in fact, one of the history books about the Maccabees, in 2nd Maccabee, uh, in, in that history book telling this story, there's actually an account that how they celebrated, it, quote, carrying green palm branches and the people paraded around singing grateful praises. So for 150 years, waving palm branches was the Jewish way to celebrate liberation. Oh, and these people also read the Bible, so they knew the way to sing songs about liberation as well. In fact, what they sang was directly drawn from what we know as Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a cry to God for salvation. It says things like, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humanity or in nobles. Or it says, All the nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I destroyed them. 
It says, they pushed me hard to make me fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. It says, open the gates of righteousness for me. I will enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And then in Psalm 118, verses 22 through 29, this is where we begin to draw the idea for this song. And some of this will sound very familiar to you. It says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Interesting that Jesus pulls that line out of that and quotes that later. He says, this came from the Lord. It's, it, is, it is wondrous in our sight. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, save us. Hosanna. Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God and has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifices with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give you thanks. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. So they see a guy come into town, not walking, but riding. A guy who's done miracles, murmurings that this cat might be the Messiah. And they lose their minds. You add on to that, that when Jesus gets onto the donkey, whoever was standing around them in that moment saw the disciples make a decision. It says that they took their robes off and they place them onto the donkey for Jesus to sit. And the reason that they did that was because traditionally the way to honor a king, we can see this in 2 Corinthians 9.13. It says, as soon as Jehu was announced king, for example, each man quickly took his garment and put it under Jehu on the bare steps. This became the cultural tradition that if a Jewish person wanted to honor someone as, a, as, a royal, as, a, as royalty, they would take the robe off and place it under them. So the disciples, when, he's, when they see that Jesus is about to sit on the colt, they said, hold on a second, we've got to take our robes off and we're going to place them under you as you sit on this. And somebody around said, that's a good idea. So they took their robe off and put it on the ground. So that even the colt that Jesus was riding on wouldn't walk on the bare ground, but would walk on our robes as a sign of surrender and submission to this person that we've decided is going to be the king. And all of them were expecting him to do something very significant. Now, if we haven't been as clear as we need to yet, let's tie all of these things together, right? All of this sets the stage. Jerusalem is full of people who come to celebrate the Passover. People who were tired of being oppressed by Roman rule their whole lives. People who remembered the story of Judas Maccabee, who was the leader of the revolt that set them free 150 years earlier. And they, they now know to celebrate using palm branches. The crowd wanted another revolt. They expected the Messiah to come and overthrow Roman rule, and for good reason. They have been oppressed their entire lives. So when Jesus enters in with his disciples, they lay uh, their robes down. They go, okay, game on. Praise party. Let's do it. So they grab palm branches, cut them from the fields, bring them in, waving them around. Party time. They have no idea what they're actually celebrating. They lay their robes down, and they have no idea who they have actually just declared to be the king. 
and they parade him into town and they have no idea how he is about to fulfill their invitation to be their king. The parade draws attention. In fact, it draws so much attention that it lasts for about, depending on where exactly it was that Jesus started when he got onto the donkey, somewhere around two miles. Now, if you were with us last week, the longest version of a prayer walk that we did was about a mile, right? Double that through a city with narrow streets. There are just people crowding all over the place to wave palm branches and lay down their robes for two miles into the city, just losing their minds, praising, and being excited all the way to the temple. And then Jesus hops off the colt. He goes inside the temple. He takes a peek around and then goes and has dinner. And if that doesn't feel like a super anticlimactic end to a parade, I don't know what does. And I think you've just seen the beginnings of the very next thing we have to talk about. In fact, the third and final thing I want to draw your attention to on Palm Sunday, after we talk about the day and we talk about the donkey, is we have to talk about the disappointment. Because this is where it begins to turn. What do you mean you're going to bed? I have a pitchfork. We, we, we were going to go start a war. You're done for the day? Tomorrow rolls around. Oh, you're not leading us into battle, Jesus? You're flipping tables at the temple? Which has its own significance. I do not have time to get into today. But Jesus, for the entire week, becomes the disappointment to all of their expectations. And this is where we begin to realize that Palm Sunday is actually a lesson about conflicting desires between what we want and the way God will answer our prayers. See, the crowd wanted radical praise to result in political power. And Jesus wanted sacrificial love to save the world from their slavery to sin. Which all the elements work together, right? The robes were reverence for a king. He was a king. The palm branches celebrate the coming liberation. He was going to liberate them. The cries of Hosanna, save us now. Yes, and amen, he did. But not the way they wanted it. Not by their demand. God was always going to do it according to his plan. Whether for revolt or for the cross, all of the elements work. The crowd simply interpreted the elements the wrong way. And the contrast is seen most clearly in the fact that the only element of this entire celebration that Jesus chose was the donkey. And it leads me to this question. How are the ways that I am praising Jesus actually revealing my intention for him? Almost as if I would say this. The crowds picked up palm branches and laid down robes and shouted Hosanna to tell him how to save them. And I have to confess that there are moments where I've done the same thing to Jesus. 
Jesus, you're God, you're the Messiah, you're the Savior of the world, and I will give you all of my faith and put all of my trust in you and follow you anywhere as long as it's here like this now. And I cannot be the only one in this room who's done that. Jesus, I would follow you anywhere within my strict parameters of what freedom and comfort look like for me. Jesus, I will do anything for you as long as you do this for me first. Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you as long as the way you lay down your life for me gets my expectations met. And Jesus says, that is not why I came to die for you. That is not the kind of king that I came to be, to be submitted to you. I came to be king of peace, the prince of peace, so that your expectation of me would find peace in me. So, so he comes in not on a horse, but on a donkey. And everybody missed it. Everybody missed it. Maybe the disciples began to understand, but the crowd completely missed it. Let me tell you again, we will see Jesus on a horse. Read Revelation. When you do, it is game on. A battle you will not have to fight. Right? Isn't it interesting that when we see Jesus riding something, he's making a declaration about something he will do that you could never have accomplished on your own. And there will be a moment where he will ride in like a conquering king on a horse, and it will be the end of the whole story. But this day, we celebrate that he rode in on a colt that had never been ridden before, on a donkey to communicate, I'm coming in as the prince of peace, and what I am fighting to overthrow for you is not about flesh and blood. The Roman authorities will still be here, the Republicans and the Democrats will still be fighting over the nation tomorrow, but you are saved by the blood of the, of the Lamb, by the Jesus who fought against spiritual principalities to buy your spiritual freedom. In the context of that, you can vote for whoever you want to. You can be a part of whatever groups and tribes and, and politics and all of that that you feel compelled to, but don't you dare forget that you have a king who died to establish a kingdom forever. This is why we celebrate on Palm Sunday. So we can be a part of a party that we actually understand the purpose of. So Palm Sunday offers us an opportunity to evaluate the ways we place our own expectations on Jesus and then lay them down. Pastor Caleb Mathis actually reflected on this really well in an article uh, that I read as I was studying. I just want to share an excerpt from it. He says, how many times have I made Jesus about my wants? How many times have I dressed him up to suit my perspective? How many times have I treated him as my champion, fighting for my desires, supporting my candidates, uplifting my way of life? So why is Palm Sunday important? It forces us to stare into the face of our self-absorbed presuppositions about Jesus. When I do that, I see myself in that same crowd, making Jesus into who I want him to be instead of allowing him to define himself, a king who chooses to serve rather than exploit his people. The humility of the king of heaven, riding on a donkey into the same crowd that would be shouting for his death in just a few days, knocks me off any pedestal I've constructed for myself. The only reason I can fathom to such an extraordinary king 
is to follow his example, to live as he lived, and to serve him in return. For my short-sighted expectations of who you are, Hosanna, save me. For my self-absorbed perspectives, Hosanna. For my desire to be served instead of serving, Hosanna. Jesus, save us. Palm Sunday is about leaning into the disappointment between what I want from Jesus and what he actually offers me. For us, it is the celebration that Jesus was the better way and he still is the better way. It's an invitation to join the parade, to wave the palm branch, to, to, to sing Hosanna, save now, and thank you, God, that you did save us now. It's, it's an opportunity for us to name his, him as the king, not over our nation, but over our hearts. He didn't come to give me power. He came to give me life. Palm Sunday is an invitation to remember that Jesus is perfectly able to establish his kingdom his way. He does not need my help or my opinions or my directives. Our job is simply to praise and then submit to and partner with his way. You saw Macaulay wrote in a Christian Today, Christianity Today article, if we strive to establish God's rule through self-assertion over neighborly care, pragmatism over principle, and malice over love, then whatever else we accomplish, we are no longer following the way of Jesus. God chose meekness, integrity, and love to gather his people. That is the message of Palm Sunday. For all the shouts of acclamation, Jesus never lost sight of the cross. On this day, Palm Sunday, marks day one of Jesus' final journey to the cross. Every action he took was deliberate. Everything he did, he knew what was coming. And he knew that with every action he took, he was increasing the confusion and the frustration and the disappointment of the crowd so that only a few days later, that crowd would turn on him and shout, crucify crucify. But I'm struck today by the reality that it wasn't just the crowd that grew disappointed and turned on Christ. In fact, it was one of his own inner circle. Interestingly enough, I told you about a man named Judas Maccabee earlier who led the revolt to overthrow and kick out the invading army and restore free, liberated worship to the temple and to the holy city. And by Wednesday night of Holy Week, another guy named Judas was so tired of watching Jesus not overthrow the government that he ran to the enemies of Christ and for a small fee betrayed the Messiah. Over disappointment, about methods. I, I, I genuinely don't know how much of a coincidence it is that they were both named Judas and that they both wanted a warfare-type revolt and that Judas was willing to sell it all for a fight that he didn't get the way he wanted. 
but it makes me ask a ton of questions. And as I continue to think about Holy Week, I'm especially struck that this man who betrayed Jesus, when the betrayal of the crowd comes into the inner circle through Jesus, through Judas, that this guy was at the table when Jesus was celebrating the Passover meal. And that, that Jesus knew what he had done, knew what he was about to do, and allowed him to be at the table. I'm stunned by that. This is another one of those moments where I look at Jesus and say, what are you doing? Why, why don't you behave the way I want you to, Jesus? Imagine how many more people you could have preached to. Imagine how many more miracles could have been done if you had told Judas, I know what you did. Boys, tie him up. But what would have been lost? It's amazing to me that Jesus lets Judas sit at the table. I don't know all of the reasons why he did it, but I think for today, at least one of the reasons we can reflect on is I think that Jesus lets Judas sit at the table because sometimes I'm Judas. And I get invited to the table. Sometimes I betray. Sometimes I'm angry with Jesus that he doesn't behave the way I want him to. Sometimes I'm angry. Jesus is leading the Passover meal. The same night that he's going to be arrested, tried illegally, led to the cross. And Judas is sitting at the table. Judas hears Jesus say, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Judas was invited to drink. Judas hears Jesus say, this cup is the new covenant in my body, which is poured out for you. And we know that Judas was sitting there because the very next thing that Jesus says is, but look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. And the fact that there was room for an argument means that Judas, sitting at the table, played that game. Lord, is it me? Peter going, that's definitely not me, right? <laughs> Thomas, it's probably me. <laughs> right? And Judas knew what he had done. Knowing what was in his heart, he's invited to sit at the table and plays that game. Wild to me. 
It really makes me have to stop and think, how many times have I come into the very presence of God and pretended with Him? And yet He still invites me to the table, and I am stunned by that. And thank God that his ways are better than mine, his thoughts are higher than mine, that I do not understand the way that he thinks except that he just cannot help himself but to love me. So today on Palm Sunday, it also just happens to be the first day of our month, the day where when we gather as a church, we come to the Lord's table. And so that's how we're going to end our service today. I'm going to invite you to the same table that Judas was sitting at. The same table Thomas was sitting at. That Peter, John, and James were sitting at with the Messiah. They had just seen him ride into town. They've heard him teach for years. They've seen him do miracles. They are absolutely convinced that he is the Messiah, and yet they still do not fully understand. But you, fully knowing and still fully being a little bit like Judas, are invited to the table. So here's how I want you to receive this invitation today as you come to the table. By the way, we have at Life Church what's called an open table. This means that if you are a follower of Jesus, you don't have to have signed a piece of paper that says that you're a member of our church, and you don't have to prove that you're saved. You are invited to the table. This also does mean that as you come to the table, if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, do not take this moment lightly. You are invited. And as you come, receive the invitation, not just to a table, but into the kingdom. And so as you come to the table today, I want you to think about your expectations that you have placed on God. I want you to think about the ways that you have fallen short of the glorious standard of God's righteousness. I want you to think about the ways that you have responded to feeling like God has disappointed you or let you down or not been what you wanted him to be. And I want you, as you come, to lay all of that down. I want to invite you to lay it down like a robe placed before the king or, 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 or like a palm frond on the road before the Savior of the world. And as you go back to your seat, having reflected on all of the ways that you've placed expectation on Jesus and fallen short of him, I want you to go back carrying a cracker and a cup that represents blood and a broken body and say, Hosanna. Thank you that you have saved me now. Save me now, Hosanna, from the ways that I betray and sin and fall short. To my right and my left, there are a pair of tables with some trays. I want to invite you even now just to begin to stand and come. If you'd like to join me in coming to the table of the Lord, over the next few moments, just come and grab one of the cups, one of the crackers, return to your seat. And as you do, remember, as you're coming, think about the ways that you are like the crowd. Think about the ways that you are like the disciples. Think about the ways that you are like Judas, that you misunderstand. That you've missed the point.
And as you return to your seat, Hosanna. Save me now from the ways that I betray. Save me now as I lay down my expectations and I choose to trust your way. So save me now. Hosanna, save me now from living my own way. I want to invite you as you're at your seats. When you are ready, you can eat and drink, receive the grace, the forgiveness that Jesus offers to every single one of us. We say thank you, Lord. We say thank you, God. We say thank you to you, God. Once you have taken communion today, can you, in your own words, say thank you to God for his grace to you, for his goodness, for his love, his forgiveness? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. God, we say thank you for the blood and the body that was offered to me. Thank you that your death and your resurrection purchased life for me. Thank you that you knew the way to accomplish the work and it was better than what we came up with on our own. Thank you, God. Hmm. I'm going to give you just another moment before we finish. If you haven't yet, feel free, invited to partake. Say thank you to the Lord. Now, many of you have already 
finish this moment, I want to invite you to do something, one thing quickly, well, or you can take the rest of the day to do it, I suppose, but um, would, you, would you quickly turn to a neighbor near you and just pray together? Pray together something to this effect. Um, God, we thank you for your work in our lives. Help us to live worthy of the sacrifice that you made. Would you just turn in a, maybe a small group of friends or, or just you and a neighbor real quick and just pray that, God, we thank you for your work in our lives. If you want to pray, God, help us to live worthy of the sacrifice that you made for us. If there's anything else that you want to pray for each other for this week, take a moment and pray together. God, thank you so much for your work in our lives. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. We pray for each other this very thing now. God, help us to live worthy of your work, worthy of your sacrifice. Thank you, Lord.